Morning, again. You should have your, on your chair um, uh, or on your seat near you an outline, so if you want to use that or if you want to make use of it, it's there for you. Everything will be up on the screen as well for you. Now, a few years ago, I had the amazing privilege to spend 10 days in India uh, doing some Bible teaching for some churches over there, and I had the really humbling experience of meeting some amazing people, some fantastic people who were just so passionate about God and the Lord Jesus and living for him and serving him, even in often really quite difficult situations. Uh, there's some pictures here of some of the folks I met. Um, here's a group there. Uh, you can see me in there in the picture somewhere, and Andy Hunter, who some of you will know. Uh, we preach Christ crucified, as it says there, a real testimony to the, the transformation of the gospel in these people's lives. There should be another one coming up for you. Um, there of people just worshipping the Lord together. Um, it was great to see how enthusiastic they were to sing in worship. And here was another small church. This was the church meeting in a home that we visited and the children. And then there should be another one uh, there. This was all the children in a home. This was in a little village out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, we visited there. And, uh, and this was in a tiny little uh, room on a farm. And this was the, uh, the group of people. Um, there was a great moment when one of them started videoing me on their iPhone, which was a little bit bizarre given there was no electricity on the farm. But anyway, that's kind of modern India for you. So that was a great experience. I think that's all the pictures, isn't it? Yeah, that's all the ones we've got. So they're just some examples of some of these phenomenal, lovely, amazing people that I got to meet uh, over there. And they were serving Jesus. They were living for Jesus. They were worshipping God. They were living for him. But they hadn't always been like that. Nearly all the people in the pictures that uh, I've shown you there this morning had grown up as Hindus. And they had grown up worshipping all sorts of idols. Idol worship had been a central part of their life. That included taking offerings to shrines and bowing down and praying to idols. Really kind of a, had a grip on their lives. They were the, the kind of people that the Apostle Paul talks about in First Thessalonians when he writes these words. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And just a hundred yards from one of the buildings I visited was a shrine to an idol. There's a picture of it here for you. This was just literally a hundred yards outside of the church building. And this was this shrine. People would go and you'd see them going in, taking food and taking offerings and bowing and praying to the idol up there on the wall, the picture. And if you stood outside of the, the church building, just looked down the road, you could see this. This was going on all day, and people were, were living like this. And I felt a little bit like Paul when he visited Athens, where it says in Acts that while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. It's worth remembering that approximately 1.2 billion Hindus live in this world, people who actively uh, are engaged in idol worship. And there's possibly another sort of 800 million people as well who are not Hindus but are also engaged in idol worship as part of their belief system and their life. So perhaps up to 2 billion people in the world this morning who actively engage in idol worship. Active worship and devotion to physical idols is still alive and well here on planet Earth. Probably around 25% of the world's population actively engage in worshiping physical idols. I took this picture of an outdoor shop. This was one evening just in the, in, the, in the city where we were staying of an outdoor shop selling idols. You could go and buy this idol and they were doing lots of business. People were 
literally engaged in idol worship everywhere. There were temples, there were shrines, it was everywhere. But it was so great to meet so many people who, like the believers in Thessalonica that Paul wrote to, had turned to God from these idols. Their lives had been changed by an encounter with God and and through the gospel, and they were now worshipping the living and the true God and his son, the Lord Jesus. My initial reaction to seeing all these idols was genuinely a little bit like Paul's. It was distressing. It really was distressing. The, the spiritual darkness was tangible. You could genuinely, you could feel it. it was, there was a real demonic oppression around you. It was really quite horrible. And then my reaction turned to a kind of self-righteous pride and smugness as I was kind of glad that I wasn't as ignorant as these people who were worshipping these lifeless idols. I was so glad I wasn't like them. You know, I have never worshipped, I've never bowed down, I've never prayed to an image or an idol in my life. And it seems to me, from a kind of Western worldview point of view, it just seems bizarre to even think about doing that. These are just clearly lifeless statues. They're just lifeless images. So why would you do that? Why would you have your whole life wrapped up in worshipping something like that? And yet, two billion people approximately this morning do. Two billion people in the world do live like that. People, many and probably most of whom are much smarter than I am, much more intelligent than I am, and much better educated than I am. But it got me to thinking about whether... I was worshipping idols in other ways. I've never bowed down. I've never prayed to an image. I've never done that. But in what other ways might I, might we be worshipping idols? Not physical idols of false gods, but things in my life that I allow myself or I allow God to be replaced by. Are there things in my life, are there things in your life that we give our heart to, that we're meant to, when we're meant to give our hearts to God? Because if they are, or if there are, then they effectively, we have idols in our lives. We might not be bowing down or worshipping a physical image, but we're still worshipping something that God has created instead of worshipping the creator. So according to the Bible, idolatry, which is the activity of making and worshipping an idol, idolatry is giving that which belongs to God to something or to someone else. It's worshipping something that's been created rather than worshipping the creator. That is the definition of idolatry. Worshipping something that God has created rather than worshipping the creator himself. And last week we began looking at the Ten Commandments and we looked at the first commandment, which is to have no other gods other than the, the one true God. And this week we're looking at the second of the commandments, which is a development really of that first one. And it's a, it's a kind of prohibition against a, sp- a specific way in which people might fall foul of that first commandment by, by making and representations of false gods by worshipping idols. So we're going to read Exodus 20 again, the account of how God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses and and therefore to Israel. We're going to read Exodus 20 and then we're going to focus in on uh, just one or two of the particular verses. So if you've got a Bible handy, whether you're at home or if you're here this morning, um, if, if you want to follow me as I read it to you, or you can just listen, that's fine. So Exodus 20 and verse 1, and it says this, And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, 
punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the foreigner within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Exodus 20 starts with these words, and God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. God speaks. He identifies himself as Yahweh, the only God, the self-existing eternal God. And then he commands his people to have no other gods. He's the only God, so I don't have any other gods. And then in a development of that first commandment, he says this. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. For you shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, before we get into what idolatry is and why it's a problem and how we can deal with it and, and how it might look in our own lives, I just want to briefly deal with the second half of this uh, commandment. Because it says here that God punishes the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate him. But that he shows love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. So what is all this about? We need to deal with this first. Well, firstly, this is a way of contrasting those who love God with those who hate God. It's contrasting two different ways of living and two different ways of relating to God. Some people will love God and therefore they'll obey his commandments, while others will hate God and therefore they'll be disobedient to his commandments. It's, it's two ways of living that are being contrasted here. Those who hate God and disobey his commandments will face God's punishment, but those who love God and who are therefore obedient to him, they receive and experience his love. That's the first point. Secondly, it's a way of demonstrating God's heart and desire towards those he's created because God's punishment is limited in comparison to his blessing. His punishment here, as it's written about, is limited in comparison to the blessings that he gives. In this statement, God's judgment is limited to four generations, whereas his blessings go to a thousand generations. 
Now, we're not meant to take this four generations and thousand generations literally. It's a way of speaking in order to make a point. It's, I guess you could call it hyperbole. It's an exaggerated form of speech to make a point, to help us understand something. Just like we might say to our kids, how many millions of times have I told you to pick up those dirty socks off the floor? And, and the point is that God's heart and his desire to bless those he's created is greater, much greater than his desire to punish. That's kind of the point that's being made here. God's desire to bless those he's created is so much greater than his desire to punish. He is holy, he's righteous, so he has to and he will punish sin and he, he, he does that, but his love for his creation is greater. So those who love God, which they show by being obedient to his commands, are blessed so much more than those who hate him are punished. That's the second point. But nevertheless, it does still say that God punishes the children of those who hate him. So what does this mean? Well, it, he doesn't mean that he holds a child accountable for his father or his grandfather's sin. There's various other parts of the Old Testament law that specifically state that children were not to be held responsible for their parents' sin and vice versa. That's, that simply wouldn't be fair. And it's not teaching that if, for instance, my great-grandfather, who I've never met, sinned in some way, let's say back in 1905, that I will then be punished today in 2021 for something he did. That's not what it's saying either. That is not what it's teaching. What it means is this in practical terms, is that if a person hates God, then it will affect their child. The child will live with the consequences of their parents' hatred of God and their, their consequential sinful actions. If a man murders somebody, for instance, then he alone is responsible before God for that murder, for his sin. But his children will sadly have to live with the consequences of what the father has done. That the child of a murderer will be negatively affected in, in all sorts of ways. Sin rarely just affects the person that commits the sin. We often think that if we sin, it's just us, and if it's private, no one else knows about it. But sin always affects other people. Even secret sins affect other people. It affects the spiritual climate we live in, even in church life and so on. And, and, and sadly, what often happens in life is that children go on to repeat the sins of their parents. They're raised in a sinful environment, and they go on to do exactly the same sins that their parents do. It doesn't always happen. It doesn't have to be that way, but it often does. Men who commit domestic abuse against their wives often had fathers who did exactly the same thing. They go on repeating the kind of patterns of sin. The son who sins in the same way as his father is personally responsible for his own sin, can't blame it on his father, but it is one of the consequences of his father's sin. And when we sin, it's rarely just ourselves that are affected. And that's one of the reasons why we need to really take sin seriously, because it's never just us. It's never just us that's affected. And even a person's secret sin can have negative consequences on other people. So in that way, the children of those who hate God and disobey him end up being punished not directly by God, but by the environment and by the situations that they live in. Not just the person who sins, but also for those around him. And we see this particularly bound up with uh, hatred of God and rejection of God and the practice of idolatry. The worship of things that have been created rather than the worship of the creator. This is one of the ways in which it plays out. So let's, let's turn to Romans chapter 1. Uh, verses 18 to 32. We see this kind of taught here in, in Romans. 
and explained in a bit more detail for us. Romans chapter 1. The Apostle Paul here is describing how humanity as a whole rejected God, the Creator, and turned instead to worship things that the Creator had made. And then Paul explains what the consequences of that rejection of God are for the whole of humanity. It's a historic description of what's happened to humanity, but it's also an ongoing description of what humanity continues to do. So let's read the passage. Romans chapter 1, we're going to read from 18 to 32. And you can just listen as I read it to you. So Paul is writing a historical description of what's happened, but also this is an ongoing description of what is happening in humanity. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. This is the key. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this... God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with, one, with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So despite knowing God, humanity, historically and in an ongoing sense, has rejected the truth about who God is and about God and has instead worshipped and served created things. Human beings therefore engage in idolatry. We, we serve things that we've created. We create idols that we worship. And as a result, God effectively says and has said, if that's the way you want it, then I will hand you over to the consequences of your sin. Because humanity has exchanged the truth of God for a lie and has worshipped created things rather than the creator, we now have to live with the consequences of our sins. Sin produces more sin. It's that same kind of principle of the, the, the sons living with the sins of their fathers. Because humanity has exchanged that truth of God for a lie and has worshipped created things rather than the creator, we now have the consequences. When people fail to obey that first commandment, to have no other gods other than Yahweh, the, the, the one true God, then it leads to them breaking every other commandment. We only ever break the other commandments because we've broken the first one. And, and the reason the world is in such a mess, as we've just read there this morning, is because human beings have rejected, firstly, the truth about who God is. 
And when we do that, everything else follows. And God says, if that's the way you want it, over you go. Live life the way you want. We saw last week how God created every single human being to live in a relationship with him and to worship him, to bring him glory. That's why we were created. That's why we exist. But when we fail to do that or when we choose not to do that, and instead we give our love to someone or to something other than God, then we provoke God's jealousy. He says this, I am the Lord your God and am a jealous God. Now, when we think about jealousy, we normally think about it in a negative way. It's usually the kind of jealousy that we have or we see in other people is an unpleasant jealousy. It's a kind of petty sort of thing. But God's jealousy isn't like that. He says in, uh, in Joshua 24, 19, we read these words, he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. So God's jealousy is a holy jealousy. It's, it's a sinless jealousy. It's perfect and pure jealousy. When we're jealous, it's usually because we're being envious of someone else. They have something that we want that doesn't belong to us, and so we become unhappy and, and bitter and twisted and all that kind of thing. And, and, and that, that unhappiness and that jealousy often then leads to all kinds of really bad sinful behaviors and attitudes. God's, be, God's jealousy is different because God's jealousy is pure and holy. He wants our hearts. He wants our minds. He wants us. He wants our worship and our glory. He doesn't need it, but he wants it. He's jealous for it, it because it belongs to him. The word jealous can equally be created, uh, can equally be translated as zealous. God is zealous for our affection, for our love, for our worship. He's jealous. He is zealous for it. He wants it back. We've stolen it from him. He created us to give it to him, and yet we've stolen it from him, and we've loved other things. We've loved other people or other things. We've, we've worshipped created things rather than the creator. In Exodus 34, Verse 14, we read, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. One of God's names is Jealous. That's one of his names in the Bible. He made us for his glory. We are his, yet we give ourselves to other gods, gods that are not gods, false gods, and to idols. So his jealousy isn't the kind of nasty, petty, envious jealousy, the kind of jealousy that we're prone to. His jealousy is a pure and a holy jealousy for his own glory. It's a zealousness for what belongs to him. We were made for his glory. That's the jealousy that he has for us. So what's the problem then with making an idol? What is the issue? Well, what's the problem with making some kind of image to pray to and worship? Often a lot of people sometimes make images or or, or pictures or, or uh, idols of Jesus himself or, or Jesus on the cross. You know, well, what's wrong with that if it's well-meaning? Well, firstly, God doesn't want us to create some kind of image uh, or statue of him or of Jesus because he's spirit. God has no form. In Deuteronomy 4, we read these words. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape. God is spirit. He, is, he has no material form of any kind. So any kind of idol or shape that we create to represent God or represent Jesus will be inaccurate. It's not him. We'd just be praying to an image or a, an idol of him. And we, we, we would kind of take our attention off him and we'd be praying to, a, to, to an image of him. That's why we shouldn't have statues or pictures of God or Jesus, because they're incapable of representing who he really is. 
And we're effectively worshipping a God that we've created again rather than worshipping the creator. So it's important that we don't have statues or images of God or Jesus, no matter how well-meaning we might be in doing that, because it isn't God. He is spirit. He's unseen. And any statue or image or representation of Jesus we try to make is incapable of representing him properly. That's one of the reasons, I think, in the Bible we don't have a physical description of Jesus. Because we're not meant to be trying to recreate some physical description. We're meant to be worshipping God who is spirit. You can't represent God's eternal self-existence with a statue or with an image. You just can't do it. You can't capture it. The idol or the image of the statue would be a created thing created by the worshipper themselves, it, it, it wouldn't be the creator. We'd be rejecting the truth of God for a lie. But not only is the second commandment a, pro, a prohibition against making an image or a statue of God or Jesus, it's also a prohibition against creating a physical image or statue of anything else, a bird or something in the sky, on the ground or whatever, worshipping anything that's been created by God Uh, or worshipping an image of something created by God instead of worshipping God himself is to fall for a lie. It's a deception. We're, we're, We're being deceived. And what we see as we study the Bible is that the origin of that lie to worship created things rather than the creator, the origin of that lie is to is is Satan himself. He is the deceiver. One of the names of Satan is the deceiver and he comes and he deceives us and gets us to worship created things rather than worshipping the creator. And that's one of his greatest lies, is to get people to worship things other than the creator. So according to the Bible, when a person worships a physical idol, they're actually worshipping a demon, one of Satan's agents. Psalm 106, 37 to 39, speaking about the people of Israel, says this, they worshipped their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was desecrated by their blood. And we see this a number of other places, including in the New Testament, this, this concept that actually the power behind the, the, the lie of worshipping that idol or that demon is demonic. An idol is just a lump of wood or stone or metal. It has no power in and of itself. It's just a lump of wood. But the spiritual power behind that, the, the spiritual behind, power behind the deception is demonic. It's from Satan himself. I experienced that when I was in India. When I was surrounded by real physical idolatry, there was a tangible sense of evil in the air. I'm not just exaggerating. It was, it, you, you could feel it. It was horrible. There was real spiritual darkness. So we need to get rid of any kind of image or statue. Anything that, is, uh, that, that, that leads us away from worshipping God who is formless, who is spirit, who is eternal, anything like that, we need to get rid of it, get it out of our house and, and, and don't have it, whether it's a picture or an idol or whatever. Idols are, uh, idols are ultimately demonic and we have to get rid of anything from our lives that would be a lie and lead us away from worshipping the creator. Now, having said all of that, it's probably unlikely that most of us will have a physical idol in our house. Most of us weren't worshipping idols before we became Christians. If any uh, of us would be uh, tempted to start sort of worshipping an idol, it's, it's, it's probably unlikely that that's ever going to happen, isn't it? We're, we're, because of our Western worldview, we're probably not likely to do that. So what relevance does this command have for us then? If we're not going to be tempted to worship a physical idol and, and start doing that... What relevance has it got for us? Well, 
Idolatry isn't just limited to worshipping a physical idol or a statue or an image. Idolatry at its broadest and widest sense is whenever we give what belongs to God to someone or to something else. Look at Colossians 3, for instance. Paul says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Paul says here, and he says it in Ephesians 5 as well, that greed is idolatry. So what does he mean? Well, he doesn't mean about being greedy for food, although that could be an idol in and of itself, but that's not the kind of greed he's talking about. This is about kind of covetousness, desiring something that doesn't belong to us. And it's often translated as covetousness as well in the New Testament. And greed or coveting is essentially this. It's dissatisfaction with God. It's dissatisfaction with his provision. It's a desire for something or someone that doesn't belong to us and is therefore the worship of a created thing rather than the creator. That's why greed is idolatry. Greed is idolatry because it's an inappropriate desire for more of something or someone else. And it's when a person focuses on things or people instead of God. We create an, we create an idol out of someone or something when we desire it or them more than we desire God. So when we give our hearts to someone or to something more than we do to God. And when we do that, we're effectively exchanging the truth of God for a lie. We're worshipping created things rather than the creator. And this is much more subtle, isn't it, than, than worshipping a physical idol. That's obvious. We, we can see that. This is much harder to spot in our lives. But it's just as dangerous and it's just as wrong. When my, for instance, if my career is more important to me than God, then it's become an idol to me. When my house is more important to me than God, then it's become an idol to me. When my comfort, my, my leisure is more important to me than God, then that's become an idol to me. When another person becomes more important to me than God, they've become an idol to me. I'm beginning to replace the creator with something that's been created. So how can we spot the idols in our lives? What can we do about this? Well, the first question to ask is this. Who or what has my heart? Who or what has your heart? Jesus teaches, for instance, that what we do with our money shows where our heart is. It shows who we really love and worship. He says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your money is, is where your heart is. An audit of our bank statements can be a really good way of revealing who or what really has our hearts. What do we spend our money on? How do we decide what to do with our spare cash? But idolatry is much wider than just money and much wider than what we do with our money. I came across this really useful tool when I was preparing uh, 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 for this morning. Eight things that we can do that will help us discover if we have idols in our lives. The kind of questions we can ask ourselves. Firstly, examine your imagination. What do you daydream about? When your mind wanders, is it to things like cars and houses or things like success or the approval of other people? Examine your imagination. Examine your attention. Think about the times when you would rather be doing something else instead of focusing on God in prayer or Bible reading or attending church. What is the activity that you would rather be doing instead of being here this morning? Or rather than praying, whatever it might be. Are there one or more time-wasting activities that you regularly turn to instead of engaging in more productive tasks? 
Examine your finances. Most of us have some money left over after all the necessary bills have been paid. We don't all, but, but lots of us will have. We have spare discretionary money to spend. Is your monthly phone contract more than you give to the Lord in your giving? Is your monthly TV package more than you're giving to the Lord? What material goods or services are you most likely to go into debt to finance? What's your immediate reaction to the thought of increasing how much you give to God? And asking ourselves some of those questions can help tease out perhaps what we might have created an idol in our own lives without perhaps even realising it. Examine your prayer life. How do you feel when God doesn't respond to your prayers in the way that you would like him to, in the way that you wanted? Do you trust what he knows, that, that, that he knows what is best, or do you become angry and bitter? Have there been unanswered prayers that have made you doubt God's goodness or made you want to turn away from him? Because whatever we pray for reveals what our priorities are. What we ask God for reveals where our hearts are, reveals what really matters to us most. Examine your relationships. What, what person do you love the most? What person do you want most to please? Do you have friendships or romantic attachments that lead you away from God? Examine your emotions. What do you most fear? What do you most hope for in life? What are you most passionate about? What do you most desire? What makes you extremely angry or extremely sad? Examine your concerns. What do you worry about? Past and future, if you had a time machine and could travel into either the past or the future, what would you use it to change? What really matters to you? What, what makes you nostalgic? What are your biggest regrets? What do you most want to happen in the future? What would cause you to despair if you come to pass? These are eight really great questions that can just help us kind of dig into our heart these cravings and desires of our hearts. On the front of your outline, I've, I've put them on the back as well. And if you pick up your outline and take a little kind of worksheet, what I want to challenge you to do today, and I'm going to be emailing this out this afternoon as well, but to those of you at home, but what I want to challenge you all to do this week is to take this home, okay? So I don't want to see any of these left on the chairs. Take this home. Get some time alone and ask yourselves prayerfully. Come before God prayerfully and, and, and work through these questions. And ask yourself and kind of peer into your heart and this week if you can just you and God and and use that as something to kind of help you identify a potential idol ask yourself whether you've put it ahead of or in place of God and then resolve to dethrone it or to destroy that idol because anything that captures our hearts and our minds and displaces or competes with Jesus is an idol that needs to be dethroned and destroyed so 
if these questions help identify them, write them down. And then pray about the idol using the prayer on your outline. It's nothing magical in the prayer, but it's just a way of confessing that sin, confessing that idol, and renouncing it and, and removing it from your life. It's a, a tool that I kind of commend to you and uh, hopefully you might find useful. The Apostle John writes these words, and with this I finish. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols whatever those idols might be. Let's not exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship created things instead of the creator. Let's be those who worship God and him alone through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ.